Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. morning. Our scripture passage today is 1 John 3, 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Thank you so much. Please be seated. Thank you so much again for joining us this Sunday for the study of God's Word, the gathering of God's people. We are very thankful for the family of families, and your presence means much to us. Now, normally, on a regular basis, I have to clarify what I said in the previous week. But fortunately for us, there is no clarification from last week, and our vision is 2020, and I'm thankful for that, and perhaps the study itself might be shorter in time. But we'll see. We'll see. Let us begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the study. Our Father, this morning, uh, we lay before you all of our anxiety. We are mindful of all, all of our loss and all of our sense of despair in all of it. All of that which we feel is a consequence of sin, either directly or indirectly. And all of it lies outside of our control. We cannot effectually affect it. Often those burdens become overwhelming and they crush us. And Father, right now, We are mindful of those pressures that we are encountering currently in our life. And they remind us regularly that we can't, but only you can and Jesus did. And today, each and every prayer being prayed for physical healing and spiritual healing, we bring to the foot of your cross and of your throne. We fully confess Jesus is the ascended Christ. And soon he will return to punish the wicked, reward the righteous, and restore the garden. Father, we long for that day, and may that day of his return be today. And yet, Father, in light of that eminent return, we pray for the unbelieving that today the Holy Spirit would crush their hearts and cause them to see their need, and that they would see Jesus as their singular hope and believe. Father, we thank you for this church, for the Holy Spirit, and for Jesus, who together pray for these needs and concerns. Father, today we consider this idea of personal sin, our sin. Not that of our neighbor, not that of our state, our country, or our world, but our sin, my sin. And Father, we hate sin. 
but we know that you hate it more. You hated sin so much that you sent your son to be the savior of your world. Father, that voluntary substitutionary sacrifice does indeed matter. And that death took your wrath against sin for me. That death destroyed the works of the devil. That death was a once-for-all death. Father, not enough can be said of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension to your right hand. In this moment, we give you all the praise, all of our affection, all of our happiness, all of our joy. You deserve all of it. Protect us from the idolatry of self. Push us past our petty appetites and make us yearn for your presence, your nearness. And may what is true become our purest reality. And this morning, we bring all of our faculties to this moment. And we ask that the Spirit of God would make our appetites and our desires His appetites and His desires. And in the midst of it all, may we see Jesus. We pray this in His precious name. Amen. This morning, in our study of the immeasurable riches of Christ, we are considering the Christian and personal sin. Sin is the experience of the New Testament believer. It is undeniable and non-negotiable to say one is without sin is to call God a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 remind us that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is, in my mind, a sermon that will hopefully be very clarifying but very liberating for you as an individual. It's not so much that we will focus on your sin, but on the cross and the impact that that cross has on our sin. With that said, anytime we focus on sin as an active agent in our relationship to the Father, we are demeaning the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And there are always two problems when we consider this topic. The first is to deny that you sin. You sin. You have sin. If that's a new revelation... <laughs> To you, I, I am sorry for that, but you sin. And the second is to be consumed by your sin and thus place yourself under its authority and control. And both of those ideas are wrong. Sin is a reality in everyone's life. But as a Christian, sin has no authority or control over you. And that should be liberating. Now, I fear sin. I fear sin because sin will always cost me more than I wish to pay, take me further than I wish to go, and keep me longer than I wish to stay. I fear my sin, but I do not fear my Father in my sin. That fear of the Father in your sin is of the devil. He wants you to believe your sin affects his relationship to you. The Father's relationship with you is based solely on the Son's work in your behalf. And that's a mouthful. But I am praying and I've prepared and I'm hoping that you understand just how immeasurable the richness of his grace is to you. So I fear my sin because in the horizontal, my sin crushes me. But in my sin, I do not fear the Father. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important that we understand this truth? Well, first, if you do not think correctly about your sin and you have sin you will denigrate the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus matters as it relates to your sin. 
The second reason why this matters is that by placing yourself in your sin, under its authority, under its control, you create a false identity before the Father. Our sin struggle is a son struggle. Every crisis calls us to the cross. Sin reminds us that we can't, but only God can, and Jesus did. The grace message, that which we preach, isn't a license to feed fallen flesh, but the freedom to celebrate the cross work of Jesus. And thus, rather than look at our sin, we look at the Son. We see the cross. And then finally, when you become preoccupied by your sin, you are not thinking of the Son. You beat sin by thinking on the Son. There is no sin victory without the Son's victory. And the Son's victory over sin is your victory. In our study on sin, we will place it squarely on the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. If we see our sin without the cross, we simply look at our sin, there is desolation, bondage, and anguish. But if we see our sin through the cross, there is hope, healing, and wholeness. One of the concerns that we have when we look at this topic of sin is that we look at the individuals who appear to go off track. Instead of looking at ourselves, we have an Uncle Benny or an Auntie May who seem to have confessed Christ but seem to have derailed. And one of the cautions that we will have in our study is that you can no more determine someone is saved by their behavior as you can determine someone is lost by their behavior. There are plenty of morally conservative individuals who are lost, and there are plenty of immoral and unethical people who are saved. That anomaly or variant will not be our subject matter in this study. In this study, we are looking at you. What do you do with your sin when you sin? And my argument throughout the study is for us to look at the cross. Is Jesus enough or do we need more? And I trust if you've been here for any length of time, we walk away saying Jesus Christ is indeed enough. But like so many other areas of the Christian life, this area has suffered much at the hands of those who would remove the gospel from how one approaches this subject matter. They make it very much man-centered, and we are wanting to look at our sin through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are convinced that the cross alters our relationship to sin. Just as the cross has altered our relationship to the Father, it has also altered our relationship to, the, to sin. And we're going to ask ourselves four questions and hopefully move through this study and we'll walk away celebrating the gospel. But the first question is this. What is our relationship to sin in light of the cross? We believe that the cross does indeed matter. Two points that I'll make underneath the first question. What is our relationship to sin in light of the cross? The first is this. We still have sin even though we are saved from sin. So we believe that the cross does indeed matter. We have studied Galatians chapter 5, and Galatians chapter 5 shows us how sin is always warring against the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always warring against the flesh. We noted earlier how 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, if you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. If you say that you have never sinned, you make God a liar. And his word is not in you. So we know that even after the cross, we sin. 
Thus, no Christian can say that they have no sin. If you make such a statement that you have no sin or that you have never sinned, you are not a Christian. The recognition of your own sin is the gateway into confessing that you can't, but only God can, and Jesus did. Every Christian, and and this is what we have to grapple with, every Christian is capable of committing the most grievous and heinous sin. However, the Scripture is clear, and we will see this from the passage that was read from 1 John chapter 3, that sin does not characterize the life of God's people. No believer lives in a pattern of sin, and that's what 1 John 3 and Galatians 5 tells us, and we will look at that in just a moment. Yet sin in the life of the believer still happens. We know that from passages like 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then in the same sentence, he writes, and if anyone sins. The assurance that John gives his audience is that when you do sin, you have an advocate and his name is Jesus. He turns us toward the cross. But sin is always with us in the horizontal. And we simply acknowledge and affirm that this is what we have. The second thing when we ask the question, what is our relationship to sin in light of the cross? Well, first, we know that we do sin. But then we know that our relationship to sin has been forever changed. And theology is consistent in this matter. We know that at the death of Christ, sin is now a defeated foe. We call that the penalty against sin. There is a penalty against sin. And in our justification, although sinners, God declares us righteous. He removes for us in his death the penalty against sin. The death of Jesus Christ defeated sin. And I want us to think about that. You see your sin. And what I'm wanting us to do is see our sin through the cross. What happened at the cross? Well, the death of Christ has defeated sin. Sin's defeat is viewed as a past fact. The penalty of sin has been removed from the believer. The death of Jesus means something. And and that is what I'm trying to stress this morning. The death Christ died, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus means something. It is a powerful agent against sin. Think of this idea. The voluntary substitutionary death of Jesus. The wrath-receiving death of Jesus. The sin-destroying death of Jesus. The death of death, death of Jesus. The once-for-all death of Jesus. The forgiveness-granting death of Jesus. There is a penalty attached to sin. And Jesus has removed The penalty, the penalty of sin. Because we have accepted what Christ has done in our behalf before the Father, you and I will not answer to God the Father for our past sin, our present sin, or our future sin. And there is agreement on this. When Jesus died, he died for all of my past sin, my present sin, and future sin. For in the death of Christ, all my sin was still yet future. That is how thorough, how complete, how extensive the sin-destroying work of Jesus is. Jesus answers sin's question. 
The second thing concerning sin is not only is sin a defeated foe, but sin is legally dead. This is a very interesting area of study. There is consensus on this. What that means is where there is deviation. But because of our standing in Christ, we are dead to sin. Not only has the death of Christ answered the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. This is the truth claim of Scripture. What does it mean when it says to be dead to sin? Romans chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are no longer legally obligated to obey sin's dictates. And you might say, well, Pastor Pat, you don't know me. I still sin. I know. I am just like you. And yet the scripture says that I have died to sin. I am no longer legally obligated to obey sin's dictates. In Christ, we are no longer under the reign of sin and death. This is Romans chapter 5. No longer does sin hold sway over us. We now have the right and power to say no to its sinful demands. It is no longer having dominion or authority over us. Friends, that's incredible. That's how we look at our sin. We see it through the cross. The death of death, death of Christ. The once for all death of Christ. We are in the new way of the Spirit. We have been moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I once was, but no longer am. My entire identity before the Father has been changed forever. I cannot think, when I look at the cross, when I look at Jesus, I cannot think or act as if nothing happened. Something happened at the cross, and that vertical transaction changes the horizontal. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. And there are a number of passages inside the study that I would invite you to consider. Pick up the manuscript, look at it, and see what it says. It's saying something. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Since you have died with Christ, Romans chapter 6, to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world do you submit yourselves to decrees? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 also speaks of a completed, finished action. Thus, there is an element within us that has died and is dead in Christ. When you think of this idea, I am freed from the penalty of sin, I am freed from the power of sin. Sin no longer has authority or control over me. I have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, I do not deny the reality of sin when I make those statements, and I make the statements because that's what the Word of God says. And I don't deny the reality of sin. The Apostle John is clear in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. But I equally cannot think or act as if the cross means nothing in my relationship to sin. Something happened, folks, at the cross. Amen? Something happened. And when we sin, as I live with my brokenness in the horizontal, I have to see it in light of the cross. Because one of the immeasurable benefits of being in Christ, remember the union idea, and under the new way of the Spirit rather than under the law, is their unconditional support for me before the Father. And this is what is incredible. We look at a sin issue as our struggle. It's our struggle, but it's not really our struggle. He handled that at the cross. Right now, right now, the Holy Spirit and Jesus 
the Son are our intercessors. They're our advocates right now. Before the Father, against the accusations by the serpent. When I sin, the devil wants to rub my face in it. And when I say when I sin, it's not as if I am ever going through a period of time when I'm not in somehow violation of something. But when I sin, the devil wants to rub my face in it. He says, like the accusing adversary that he is, see, I told you, they are a loser. They don't love you. Look at them. What a pathetic example of someone who claims to be a Christian. Tragically, often what the devil says about us is probably true. However, I have an advocate, I have an intercessor before the Father who stands in my behalf and says, Father, they're one of mine. The cross matters. Not only is the cross effectual, it's powerful concerning the penalty of sin. Jesus answers that fully. And the power of sin, I am no longer under its control. I am no longer legally obligated under its authority. But the third idea, which is equally glorious, is that one day, sin itself will be permanently removed from me. Whoo! Remember that earlier picture of a yapping dog always nipping at your heels? One day, that dog will be dead. And that is the very presence of sin itself, secured for us in the person and work of Jesus. And, and if you've been here for any length of time, you'll hear me refer to the life and the death, the burial, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That whole package is answering in my behalf. But another immeasurable benefit of the sure work of Jesus is that what he has begun, he will finish. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, because faithful is he who called you who will also bring it to pass. Woo. There is no possible way, there is no possible way your sin is going to overthrow God's work. What God promises he performs. What we could not merit nor maintain, God himself in grace will finish. Woo. The consistent message of Scripture is the work of God in us will not fail. The Bema Seat Judgment is a universal declaration of God's success and faithfulness in bringing to pass that which He has begun. If this is true, that the cross has fully answered the penalty against sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. What are the implications of that for me right now? Well, how am I to understand, and that is our second question, how are we to understand our acts of sin? We sin. And I'm viewing it now through the cross, but we sin. What do we do with it? And we read uh, last week in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 21, which I'll reference again, and then 1 John chapter 3, 6 through 10. And you have some interesting ideas present, and you see the same thought 
in Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. And I know I, I've cited the passages quickly, and I would encourage you to pick up the manuscript or look at it online. But I'm wanting to show you something inside the text. What do we do, and how are we to understand our sin? Well, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, we read the entire paragraph, 1 through 10, but I'm wanting us to see something, and it's, it is important. And our translation, the ESV Bible, does bring that out. But in 1 John chapter 3, 6 through 10, it's the same thing we see in Galatians 5, 21, the same thing we see in Revelation 22, 14, and 15, and it is a grammar or tense issue. And the grammar or tense says it's a present active participle or indicative. Now, that might not matter to any of us, but the way it translates matters. It says in our passage in the ESV Bible, no one who abides, abides, that's your mailing address, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It's trying to capture this idea of a present active indicative. No one who keeps on sinning, which is the present active participle, and if you're catching nothing from all of this, you should be able to understand the English. Keeps on sinning, keeps on sinning. And then notice verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, and that's the same idea of present active participle, is righteous. As he is righteous, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning. That's how our English version translation translates that grammatical tense usage. Is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. We reverse that. We think, well, I'm sinning, and I would say to you, you are sinning, but your sinning is not the practice of sinning. You are not keeping on sinning. That's why I make the distinction between the practice of sin and point-in-time sin. You have point-in-time sin. Why do I say that? Because if you were practicing sin, you would not be born of God. What we're looking at is not behavior. What we're looking at is the cross. It's the same principle, and I could read for you 1 John 3, 6-10, and show you how they translate and why they translate what they do. The big idea is simply this. If you are born of God, you are practicing righteousness. And if I ask you the question, are you born of God? Your response should be, and if you are born of God, you are practicing righteousness. You would say to me, well, Pastor Pat, you don't know my behavior. You don't know my experience. And I would say, yes, I do know your behavior. I do know your experience. But I also equally know the Word of God. And the Word of God says that if you've been born of God, you are practicing righteousness. If you don't know God, what are you practicing? Unrighteousness, sin. No matter what you look like, that's what you are doing. Galatians 5 Verse 21, this is one of the arguments we were attempting to make when we looked at the new way of the Spirit. The works of the flesh, verse 21, it has a whole horde of them, and the listing is never exhaustive, only suggestive. There's more than that, but it says, verse 21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, though that those who do... Present active participles, the same construct as 1 John 3. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's simply saying that if you are of the devil and you practice unrighteousness or sin, you're not going to go to heaven. The same idea is picked up in Revelation chapter 21. 
Revelation 21, verses 14 and 15. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves, present active participle, and practices, present active participle, lying. Why? Because those people are born of the devil. They have the seed of the devil. If I showed you a picture of a baby alligator, what would you assume? That one day that baby alligator is going to grow up and become what? A big old bad alligator. Because seed matters. If I show you a cut apple and you see the apple seeds, and I say, if you plant those apple seeds, you're going to get an orange tree, you'd say to me, you're a liar, Pastor Pat. Because apple seeds produce quite profound, isn't it? First John chapter 3, if you are born of God, you know what you do? You bear the fruit of righteousness. If you're born of the devil, you produce the fruits of the devil, the works of the flesh. So you and I, as the people of God, if we know Jesus as our Savior from sin and death, we are practicing righteousness. And you'd say, well, Pastor Pat, this doesn't look like that. This does look like that. That is what this looks like. And I say, amen, hallelujah. You've heard me say, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed and get a good night's sleep. Amen? That doesn't sound overly spiritual, does it? But that's what righteousness sometimes looks like, going to bed. How am I to understand my own acts of sin? I am to see my acts of sin in light of the cross. In light of the cross. We need to stop measuring our relationship to the Father based on our behavior. If somehow your sin is causing you to wonder if you are saved... It's like the individual who comes to me and asks the question, Pastor Pat, I don't know if I'm saved. And I say to them, well, you know, most unsaved people aren't wondering if they're saved. You know who wonder if they're saved? Saved people wonder if they're saved. And it's the same idea here. If somehow your sin is causing you to wonder if you are saved, then I would tell you only believers ask that question. Unbelievers aren't walking around wondering if their behavior is so bad that they're not saved. They don't ask that question. In addition, not only should we be careful in how we look at our own lives, they must be looked through the cross. We need to stop judging other people based on their behavior. Bad behavior is bad, but bad behavior isn't the litmus test of belief. Third question. When I do sin, what happens? So I know that once the cross takes place and I appropriate the provision of Christ in my behalf, I know that I still sin, but my relationship to sin has forever been altered. The penalty of sin has been addressed, the power of sin, and one day the very presence of sin will be removed from me. So when I look at my own sin, how should I assess that sin? Well, I see it in light of 1 John 3, Galatians 5, Revelation 22. I look at it in light of the cross. But... When I do sin, what happens? I'll make a distinction between the horizontal and the vertical. If as a believer, our sin no longer separates us from God, then what does happen? For the believer, all the consequences of sin are in the horizontal. So when I sin, whatever consequences are attached to the sin are this way. They're not this way. Nothing changes in the vertical. Why? Because that's based on the person and work of Jesus. 
And I would simply invite you to pick up any systematic theology and open it up concerning soteriology and the death Christ died and ask yourself the question, how thorough, how complete is that death? Is that resurrection? Is that ascension? But let's look at this third question. When we do sin, what happens? The following four thoughts might be very new for you. It's something that we hold to. I've held to it for at least 20 years. I have not veered from this idea. But let me give it to you. And if you're new to our fellowship, we do this. First of all, we do not believe your sin separates you from God. My sin did separate me from God, but the cross cancels my sin so that now I have full acceptability and accessibility to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4. I was taught as a Christian that when I sin, my sin broke fellowship with God. And in order to restore that fellowship, I had to confess my sin, ask him for forgiveness, and then he would restore me to fellowship. But what would happen is that I would sin again. And as someone who sinned again, what happened? I broke fellowship. And then as a consequence of that broken fellowship, the only way to restore it was to confess it, ask God to forgive me, and then I would be restored, and then I would simply continue to repeat the pattern. I do not believe your sin separates you from God. The sin issue has been dealt fully at the cross. I do not believe that your sin breaks fellowship with God. Fellowship is a consequence of Christ's active work at the cross. His advocacy and intercessory ministries answers that question. Part of our problem as humans is that we have emotion, fallen emotion, and we often base our thought or feeling of fellowship based on feeling. I don't feel close to God. There are moments when you feel close to God, but fellowship is not a feeling word. Fellowship is a theological word. It's based on the reconciliating work of Jesus Christ. I also do not believe that you have to confess your sins in order to receive forgiveness. Why do I say that? Well, first, the cross forgave you of all your sin. The cross forgave you of all your sin. You as an individual have been forgiven. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death, all of your sin has been forgiven already in Christ. When you confess sin, and part of our problem is understanding the word confess and 1 John 1, it is a statement, and that's what the word confess means in 1 John 1. It's the word hamalageo, to say the same thing. When I sin, I agree with God. I confess that my sin is bad, that I can't, but I equally confess God can and Jesus did. That's what that word means. So when you confess sin, it is a statement of agreement with God concerning sin and the cross work of Jesus. Confession as a believer is an ongoing fruit of the Spirit. Thus, we are confessors. I confess my sin. I acknowledge the deplorable nature of my sin. But we do not teach, preach the typical and unfortunate pattern often preached concerning sin, broken fellowship, confession, forgiveness, and restoration. We believe God's answer to this unfortunate cycle is the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, I do believe that sin is damaging. Sin is damaging. But the damage is in the horizontal, not the vertical. So we ask another question, well, what does my sin do to God? In the vertical, nothing. And as difficult as that is, God's relationship to me is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that God 
doesn't hate sin. God hates sin no matter where it is manifested. Our sin, and this is what I say when someone says to me, well, you don't really take sin seriously. No, I am afraid of sin. I fear sin. And I could go through that little statement that I make on a regular basis. I fear sin, but I don't fear my father in my sin. Because Jesus is my advocate. He is my mediator. He is the one who intercedes in my behalf. But God hates sin. And our sin is so serious for the Father to send His only begotten Son to be the Savior of His people and the recreator of the physical world. That's how serious I view sin. I cannot see the seriousness of sin by looking at myself. I see the seriousness of my sin when I look at the cross. That's how serious my sin is. The second member of the Godhead came, was incarnate, lived a perfect, sinless life, offered himself up as a voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice, died and was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Forty days later he ascended to the Father's right hand and he will come again to thoroughly straighten all that is crooked. That's how serious we view our sin. So what do I do with my sin? Let me land this. What do I do with my sin? When I sin, and I will, but one of the tensions when we approach this idea and question is making it man-centered rather than Christ-centered or cross-centered. And although you and I act, our response to sin is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He works in me and through me. Thus, no such action are possible apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And there is a natural consequence of having the Father's seed in me, in my relationship and response to sin. And because of a man-centered approach to sin, we like to create lists. When I sin, I do X, Y, Z. We create lists or talisman or amulets. And, and if we just do the right thing, then this won't happen. But it does happen. You will sin. Now that you have, what should you do? My first response is always go to the cross. Confess and agree. When you think of 1 John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was taught a certain way concerning 1 John 1, 9 in that when you sinned, it broke fellowship. The only way to restore fellowship was to agree with God through confession, ask Him to forgive you, repent of that sin, then He would restore you, and then once you became aware of your sin, you'd be breaking that fellowship and repeating the cycle. And one of the fruits of the Spirit, and I've used the plural, I understand, is agreeing with God concerning your sin and concerning His Son. Do you see your sin as deplorable? Do you see it as damnable? And do you recognize that you can do nothing concerning your sin except come to the cross, except the resurrection, except the ascension of Jesus Christ? And when we look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, there are perhaps three standard thoughts concerning it. The first is, it's an initial confession. When you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death, you agreed with God concerning yourself. You said, I can't. That is hamalageo. That is confession. You said, but oh God, you can. Hamalageo. And Jesus did. Hamalageo. At the front end of this entire journey and relationship was the confession. And when you accepted what Jesus did in your behalf, he forgave you of all your sin. Amen. 
But there's another way of looking at confession as well, which is in addition to, and I agree with, I personally agree with. I believe that when you initially confess your sin before the Father, and you say, I can't, but God can and Jesus did, you continue to say that. We are confessors. We're not blind to the fact that we still sin. We own our sin. Not proudly, but we own it. We're broken. And only God can heal us. But there is a third way of looking at confession and forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9 that I completely disagree with, and I don't believe it is viable, and that is this idea that every time you sin, you break fellowship and you can only be restored once you confess and ask. Folks, if you had to ask God every time you sin for forgiveness, you'd still be unforgiven. Can you own that? God unconditionally is washing my feet. God unconditionally is forgiving me in the moment because of what he did at the cross. But if you think, well, God will only forgive me if I remember every sin, I'm sorry. That is painful. I own my sin. I see it for what it is. Confess, agree, repent, put off. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. I'll pick up the manuscript, otherwise I'm going to go too long, and I don't want to. Pick up the manuscript, but throughout, uh, and, I, and I don't have uh, time right now. I do have time, but I don't want to take it. I, I don't want to visit how confession is really a salvation word. It's not a sanctification word. And this idea of repentance is not used by the Apostle John. It's used in the Gospels. Paul uses it sparingly. Paul's language is put off. Why? Or mortify the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because you are already dead. But I'm not going to try to correct all of that right now. I've been trying to do that for 20 years. But I believe that you are to put off the old man. Why? Because it's dead. Repent of that stupid thing. I suppose you are as frustrated with your sin as I am with mine. But see it through the cross. Elevate, escalate, celebrate Jesus. Third thing, don't feed, run from. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, make no provision for future expression. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And herein lies our greatest problem. We make way too many provisions to sin. I like my sin. But in my sober moments, I realize that thing is going to kill me. And I don't like the consequences of my sin. Let me speak for a moment concerning idolatry and addiction. Addictions are horizontal attempts at meeting vertical needs and desires. God created us with vacuum. He created us with a desire to know Him. St. Augustine made the statement, You provoke us so that praising you may bring us joy. Because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But what do we do with that restlessness? How do we try to address it? With this. And this thing becomes idolatrous. And when that thing becomes an idol, it's an addiction. Idolatry happens when you begin to worship an appetite. You try to fill a divine longing with an earthly object. And once you begin fixating on the appetite, you order your schedule around it and start bringing offerings. This is what we do. 
Before long, we are addicted to it. It is where our loyalties lie, and and we cannot break the stronghold it has on us. What breaks the stronghold? Only the gospel can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When believers fall into idolatry and addiction, they feel the working of the Spirit in them. How? They long to break free from its bondage. They have sat with the pigs and have eaten their swill. That addiction has cost them more than they want to pay. It has taken them further than they want to go. And it keeps them longer than they want to stay. But they can't break it. Because only Jesus can. And what they need to hear is the same thing that you and I need to hear day in and day out is the gospel. They need to be constantly reminded of God's immeasurable riches in Christ. They need to hear and feel the Father's love for them. And then finally, remember. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. We know that. Romans 6 gives us this, these three words of knowing, reckoning, and yielding. The idea is focusing on the immeasurable riches of Christ. But you don't understand. I have this problem. I understand you have a problem. And I'm willing to journey with you in the problem. But make sure you see the cross. If you focus on sin, you know what you will see? Sin. But if you focus on the sun, you know who you will see? The sun. You cannot focus on both at the same time. Romans 6 calls us to hold fast to what is true. Knowing what is true transfers from doing what is true. I am dead to sin. I am alive to Christ. Thus I am alive in Him and newness of life. How do we close this off? Well, first, pick up the manuscript and review what has been said. Listen to the podcast. Watch it online. Remind yourself what is true. I have given you a lot to think about today. Actively place yourself in the gospel-saturated way of life. We need to eat and drink and think gospel. As we slowly build out the gospel, we must see how the gospel is what defines us, not our struggle with sin. In our current study, and I've tried to help you out here, I've, I've taken the manuscript and I've highlighted Pastor Pat's picks. There's got to be something that you can latch onto and meditate on that thing. If you struggle with your sin, my word to you is go to the cross. See the sin through the lens of the gospel. See it for what it is. The gospel not only transforms your relationship to the Father, but also to sin. And it is only as you focus on your sin that your sin has power over you. Let it go. We are to see our sin the same way that the Father sees our sin. You know how our Father sees our sin? It is finished. It is finished. Let us assume that you have a weight or struggle. It isn't something that you do every day, but it's something you struggle with regularly. What happens is the struggle you have begins to dominate your life. It begins to define you. It has wormed its way into your thinking so much that you begin to identify yourself by the struggle. And in time, you allow that struggle to control you. In time, you are under the power or authority of the struggle. In fact, you allow that struggle to define your relationship to the Father. Surely, God doesn't want me. But that struggle has no authority or power over you. That struggle cannot and does not define your relationship to the Father. 
as far as the Father is concerned, that struggle that you are with right now has been answered by His Son at the cross, and the Holy Spirit is your victory over the struggle. The struggle only gains power as you give it power. When the prodigal son left his father, the father hated what the son did because it hurt the son. And when the son was away from the father, was the father judging the son? The father stood there with open arms, waiting for the son to return. Come. And when he saw the son, what did he do? He ran. He ran towards the son. If you are struggling with sin, I call you to go to the gospel. Go to the cross. The Father awaits. You have no ability to beat sin. Only Jesus does, and only Jesus did. Sin no longer has authority or legal right over you. When you make much of sin and your relationship to it, you are placing yourself under its dominion and authority. Until we see the shallowness of life lived apart from Christ, we will never see the sufficiency and satisfaction of life lived in Christ. Folks, may we hunger after all that God has already done for us in Christ. This morning, we get to celebrate the Lord's table. The Lord's table is in play so that we remember the cross. This is what Jesus did to address the sin issue. And when he did it, he said, it is finished. And then he sat down because there was no more to be done. And one day he's coming again. And you know when I want him to come? Yesterday. And the second best time is today. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Stand with me as we close in prayer. After prayer, I would invite you to come forward, begin receiving the elements as a reminder of what Jesus has done. So let us pray. Our Father, we cannot realize just how serious our sin is until we see the cross. We cannot fathom the profound mystery of God becoming man for the purpose of redeeming sinners. And yet Jesus died while we were still sinners. Father, cause us to see our sin for what it is and to see Jesus for who he is and to celebrate the sin-destroying death of Jesus. Holy Spirit, move in us in undeniable ways. Cause us to see the miracle taking place every day around us. Right now, Father, we pray for the person who finds themselves captive to their sin. They've made an idol of it, and they are addicted to it. Father, right now, break those chains. Help them to see that they are free, free in Christ. And Father, for those who do not know you, may this be their moment of clarity. May they, Father, feel the weight of their sin, but may they equally and even more so feel the weight of your love, that you have done everything necessary for them to be free from this burdensome horizontal and the weight of the vertical. Christ has done it all. Father, for those of us who do know you, may we wallow in the immeasurable riches of your grace, and may that grace impact us, transform us, and touch others. Father, as we celebrate the elements, may we see that this is what Jesus did. So we humbly and thankfully ask, confessing all of this in the precious name of Jesus, amen.